Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on the craft of writing fiction. This is Jim Thayer, your guide in these episodes and also, of course, your lifestyle counselor. I fell off a ladder once. It was remarkably unpleasant. Here's my lifestyle advice for this episode. Don't do that. Sometimes we talk about pointed techniques, maybe smaller things that might improve our sentences, and sometimes we mention big things, important, maybe critical elements for our story, and I'd like to do that today. The subject is our main character in our story, our protagonist, our, our hero. I'd like to talk about how we can make our, our character someone the reader will just hate leaving behind when he or she gets to the last page of the novel. I have recently added a Patreon button to the description of the episodes below. This podcast about writing is and will remain free to listeners, and I'm glad about that. But if you are finding them useful and would like to support the podcast, please consider hitting the support the show link below and making a donation, and it'll be much appreciated. If we readers were asked why we like a novel, a novel we're reading, we might reply that the plot is fresh and exciting and we like the adventure of it, uh, the tension, the action, and we like... Uh, being taken in the story to somewhere we've never been, maybe to a police station or back to the 19th century, maybe to Mars, maybe to Middle Earth, maybe to the 1930s in New York City. It's all true. Readers find all of these things rewarding in a novel. But here's a thought experiment. In our top 10 novels we've read list are our favorite novels. Do they have something in common? A common denominator. I'll bet there is a common denominator of your top 10. I think the main attraction for readers of a story, the principal reason a novel becomes a reader favorite and joins the reader's top 10 all-time novel list is because the reader falls in love with a character. Love is a precious commodity in the real world. How, how many times will we fall in love in our real lives? Not many. And in fiction, readers get to experience it again and again when they read novels. And I'm not necessarily talking about romance novels. Characters in all genres can be presented in, in ways that just grab readers, make the readers invest emotions in characters. Katniss Everdeen from The Hunger Games, Huckleberry Finn, Scout Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, Elizabeth Bennet in Pride and Prejudice, Joe March in Little Women, Ponyboy Curtis from The Outsiders, Joe Gargery in Great Expectations, Hermione Granger in the Harry Potter series, Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, Augustus McRae in Lonesome Dove, Charlotte in Charlotte's Web, Celie in The Color Purple, Oscar Wow in The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, Matilda in Roald Dahl's Matilda, 
Lily in The Secret Life of Bees, Kaya in Where the Crawdads Sing. Don't we just love these people? In an earlier episode, I mentioned the ingredients of a successful protagonist in fiction. I'll list, uh, I'll list them here in a sentence each, but then I want to expand on what we, care, what we writers can do to have readers fall in love with a character we create. Almost every hero of classic and modern fiction has these five traits. First, they are kind when it counts. Second, they are brave when they need to be. Three, they are active, not passive. Four, they, they are not fools. And five, they have the ability to grow. If you'd like to hear more on these subjects where each of these five traits is discussed, I hope you'll listen to episode five of these podcasts. Are there other ingredients we can add to our character, uh, particularly designed to have readers fall in love with the character? Adding a quirk was mentioned in a recent podcast. Readers are attracted to a character with uh, a quirk because quirks are a reminder of the character's humanity. We all have quirks, so we understand and like quirks in our reader in, in our characters. Here are other ways to make readers fall in love with our characters. First, have the character confess something to the reader. In a first-person novel, it could be the character telling the reader something. In a, in a third-person novel, a character tells another character something, or the character thinks it. In The Queen's Gambit, when she's 17 years old, the main character, Beth Harmon, lets the reader know she's never had a boyfriend. A boy has never paid attention to her. Uh, she's never enjoyed those things a boyfriend might bring. It, it's moving for the reader to hear this. It's intensely personal, and it's a big hole in her life, and she confesses it to the reader and the reader sympathizes. Second, have the characters struggle. You've heard me say that novels are essentially a document of struggle. Struggle, which is conflict, is the main plot point in all successful novels. Uh, by suggesting we have our characters struggle in this regard, having the reader fall in love with a character, I'm not talking about struggle regarding the main story question, but rather struggle with seemingly small or maybe more personal things involved. An example, uh, the John le Carre novels featuring the protagonist George Smiley. Uh, Smiley has a main story question which in the novels which involve Cold War intrigues, but he also has to cope with the chronic infidelities of his wife, Lady Anne Sircombe. This sits in his mind throughout the stories, and we readers are sympathetic. Third, make our character funny or witty. After a while, relentlessly dour characters become hard to hang out with for the reader. In George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series, Tyrion Lannister's quips and sarcasm and bone-dry humor lighten the mood of a series that can be dark. Readers really like Tyrion Lannister.
Fourth, show rather than tell about the character's personality. Lawrence Sanders' novel, The First Deadly Sin, in the first scene, the protagonist, Detective Francis X. Delaney, eats a Dagwood sandwich over the kitchen sink so he won't mess up the table. It shows that Delaney, Delaney figures things out and that he isn't a rules follower. It shows it rather than the author telling it. In Anne of Green Gables, Anne and her friend Diana recreate a, in a play, their own play, Tennyson's poem, The Lady of Shalott, which is about Camelot and Sir Lancelot and a, and a desperate love, which shows, rather than tells, that Anne is a dreamer and a romantic. Fifth, create a compelling history for your character. We should be careful about a character's lengthy history because it's backstory, events that occurred before the story begins, and backstory should be short. But most all main characters in a novel should have some history. Regarding our character's history, readers are programmed to cheer for the underdog. We should probably have our hero's history be challenging to the hero. Maybe she was poor. Maybe she, maybe she didn't have a loving family. Maybe she was ill for a long time. And, or maybe she was wrongly accused of a crime. Maybe she was a shy loner growing up. Readers love underdogs. And a character who is a dark horse in life will grab the reader. Examples are Jean Valjean in Les Miserables. Lisbeth Salander in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Hester Prynne in The Scarlet Letter, uh, Pip in Great Expectations, Liesel Meminger in The Book Thief. Sixth, have the character have a weakness. Michael Corda, the longtime editor at Simon & Schuster, has said a character's weaknesses are far more interesting than her strengths. Even Superman has weaknesses. In L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, the lion's weakness is his cowardice, or rather he thinks he's a coward. In Stephen Chbosky's The Perks of Being a Wallflower, Charlie's made more attractive to the reader because he is intensely shy. Readers will, will sympathize with our character when he has a weakness. Seventh, Show them in a relationship. A romance is good, but it doesn't always need to be a romance. Perhaps a strong friendship or, or something in the family. Maybe she has an elderly father or some other family relationship. The reader will learn how the character treats other people, people she loves. In the Master and Commander series by Patrick O'Brien, the protagonist, Captain Jack Aubrey, has a close friendship with the physician, Stephen Maturin. The, the two characters are highly dissimilar. Their personalities are, are fairly the opposite of each other, but they understand each other and are intensely loyal to each other, and this affection and loyalty makes a deep and positive impression on the reader regarding uh, both Aubrey and Matron. In The Hunger Games, we see Katniss and her sister Prim 
how much Katniss loves and cares for her, and it makes us love Katniss. So that's my list. You may have elements you can add to the list. The, the technique here is a strong one. Make readers fall in love with our character. Why? Let me be profound. Readers love falling in love with a character. It's a huge reason, maybe the main reason they'll love our story. I'd like to talk more about dialogue. I recently mentioned some techniques for writing romantic dialogue and angry dialogue. Uh, dialogue is really interesting for readers. It's as if the reader is sitting next to the characters, listening in, as if the reader is part of the scene. Dialogue puts readers right in the scene. I'd like to mention sad dialogue. Sad dialogue is difficult to write because it's easy to slip into melodrama. Uh, you've heard me say that if your character cries, the reader won't have to. It's, it's true. When characters start shedding tears, for some reason, readers resist the emotion. So we should try to show characters sorrow in our dialogue without tears. Here is Larry McMurtry's Terms of Endearment. Two little boys, Tommy and Teddy, are losing their mother, who is dying of cancer. Everyone is trying to remain strong, and they all have their own ways of doing it. S still, we feel their intense sadness. Notice, though, that nobody's crying and there's even some anger. Here's Larry McMurtry. Teddy had meant to be reserved, but he couldn't manage. His feelings rushed up and became words. Oh, I really don't want you to die, he said. He had a husky little voice. I want you to come home. Tommy said nothing. Well, both of you better make some friends, Emma said. I'm sorry about this, but I can't help it. I can't talk to you much longer either, or I'll get too upset. Fortunately, we had 10 or 12 years, and we did a lot of talking, and that's more than a lot of people get. Make some friends and be good to them. Don't be afraid of girls either. We're not afraid of girls, Tommy said. What makes you think that? You might get to be later, Emma said. I doubt it, Tommy said, very tense. When they came to hug her, Teddy fell apart and Tommy remained stiff. Tommy, be sweet, Emma said. Be sweet, please. Don't keep pretending you dislike me. That's silly. I like you, Tommy said, shrugging tightly. I know that, but for the last year or two, you've been pretending you hate me, Emma said. I know I love you more than anybody in the world except your brother and sister, and I'm not going to be around long enough to change my mind about you. But you're going to live a long time, and in a year or two, when I'm not around to irritate you, and you're, go and you're going to change your mind and remember that I read you a lot of stories and made you a lot of milkshakes and allowed you to goof off a lot when I could have been forcing you to mow the lawn. Both boys looked away, shocked that their mother's voice was so weak. In other words... You're going to remember that you love me, Emma said. I imagine you'll wish you could tell me you've changed your mind. 
but you won't be able to, so I'm telling you now. I already know you love me, just so you won't be in doubt about that later, okay? Okay, Tommy said quickly, a little gratefully. That's Larry McMurtry in terms of endearment. I've never read satyr dialogue in any novel ever, and I can hardly get through it right now reading it. Mom is confessing her son's love for herself because he can't do it. Huge love and huge sorrow in the same scene. This is an incredibly sad scene, though, though nobody's crying. Here are the keys for writing sad dialogue. First, I've mentioned this before. If a character weeps, the reader won't have to. Uh, we should consider avoiding tears as we write the scene. Tears let emotion escape from the page when the reader wants to keep it bottled up right in front of the reader. Uh, this is a counterintuitive technique, but it works remarkably well. Second, consider using contrast. Sad dialogue will be sadder if it's contrasted with something sunny in the scene. Maybe the sad character is speaking with a second character who simply doesn't understand what's going on, doesn't understand the sadness. Or perhaps the sad dialogue is happening in a fun and or joyous setting. How about a, a sad uh, conversation at a wedding or, or a rodeo? Three, the word spoken will depend on your character. A character who doesn't trust others or is shy or is always withdrawn likely won't bear her soul in a conversation. But a character who's been shown to be bubbly and talkative and trusting might tell everything and be entirely honest and candid when she talks about her sadness. In other words, your character should act in character. Four, avoid cliches. It's, it's harder than it sounds. She broke my heart. I'm lost without her. Uh, we should try. Five, remember to try to show rather than tell. Instead of telling with something like, Amy was sad, show her walking with her head down, or absently shaking her head, or, or closing her eyes, or, or sighing, or, or staring at him as he walks away, or uh, as she sits at a desk taking her head in her, in, 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 taking her, head in her hands. Six, just as in other emotional dialogue, sometimes the characters in sad dialogue might not make a lot of sense and might not stay on topic. Maybe one of the characters is trying to find a way out of her sadness by talking of something lighthearted. Uh, maybe the other character is saying things out of context to, to deflect the sadness. Seven. Uh, sad dialogue is a good time to modulate your character's voices. Maybe instead of the dialogue tag, she said, it might be, she whispered. Or we can write, her voice was low, or her voice was ragged, or her words caught in her throat, or his voice broke. Uh, but we should avoid melodramatic dialogue tags such as, she choked out. Eight, sad people are often vulnerable and honest. This is often a good time to reveal a character's 
soul. So those are some techniques for writing sad dialogue. Dialogue that is emotional is usually the most interesting for readers, and we can write sad dialogue that'll really pull the reader into our story. Here are some thoughts about getting rid of a block to our creativity. I've mentioned writer's block in an earlier episode. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal by Belinda Lanks about creativity and the things that prevent it. Uh, It caught my attention because it applies directly to those of us writers who are stuck plotting our novel or are just stuck somewhere in the writing. Uh, The article is a review of a new book about getting unstuck. Here's some of the article. After the debut of his 1952 novel, The Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison spent 42 years writing a follow-up, only to leave it unfinished when he died in 1994. Truman Capote, by the time of his death in 1984, uh, was still working on his self-hyped novel, Answered Prayers. Decades after publishing his 1965 masterpiece, In Cold Blood. Creative blocks aren't exclusive to famous authors or even to people we think of as being creative. We all get stuck. We make strides on a project, whether it's mastering a sport, changing careers, or building a company, and then we just don't. Blocks are common. And how we respond to them varies wildly. Some give up in frustration or despair. Others stubbornly hew to habits that no longer work. Still others get caught up in a vicious web of perfectionism. Adam Alter wants to rescue us from those unproductive impulses in Anatomy of a Breakthrough, How to Get Unstuck When It Matters Most, The New York University marketing professor draws on research studies, anecdotes, and interviews to reveal the self-imposed barriers that thwart our progress and the actions we can take to surmount them. The first step, according to Mr. Alter, is to reframe our perception of failure. Bombarded by success stories, we often overlook the struggles and obstacles that came before them. The truth is that we all encounter roadblocks. Thomas Edison famously tried out more than 1,600 filament materials for his light bulb before finding the right one. We're better served, Mr. Alter tells us, by recasting a barrier as, quote, a feature rather than a bug on the path to success, end quote. Another mistake is underestimating how thorny and lengthy the creative process can be. At the first sign of difficulty, we might doubt our ability to overcome it. We value persistence in others, but question whether it will help dig us out of our own mud. But few ideas arrive fully formed and viable. Mr. Alter offers some concrete strategies for getting unstuck and moving forward experiencing a midpoint slump? First, break up your project into smaller, discrete goals, rewarding yourself for the completion of each. Second, paralyzed by perfectionism, strive for excellence instead. 
The best unstickers, Mr. Alter says, are the people who are open to trying new techniques, pivoting when necessary, and consistently punching in. As the painter Chuck Close once said, quote, Inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just show up and get to work. End quote. This article is by Belinda Lanks in the Wall Street Journal, and it can uh, apply directly to us writers when we're stuck plotting our novel or plotting our next chapter. We have arrived at the end of this episode. I'm glad you were along for it. If you'd like to send me a message, my email address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys. <laughs>